welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Craig. And I'm Todd. And we've been doing this podcast for a long time now, and so a lot of the movies that have been pretty impactful to us in our lives, from our childhoods or early adulthoods especially, we've covered. And so at this point, we're kind of having to uh, look a little harder and think a little bit harder about what we're going to do each week. Todd said I could pick this week, so I just went on to the streaming services to see what was available, and I ended up on Tubi, uh, where one of the featured films that showed up right, you know, at the top of the screen was 1988's Pumpkinhead. As soon as I saw that, I thought, oh man, that's what we should do. And then frankly, I couldn't believe that we hadn't done it already. I don't know how we missed this one. This is kind of a big one from the 80s. It is. I remember seeing this when I was young. I don't remember how old. I'm pretty sure I watched it with my dad. And all I really remembered about it was that I kind of liked it. But I thought that it was, you know, well-known enough and had enough of a cult following, it would definitely be worth revisiting. So that's what we did this week, and that's kind of my history with it. What about you, Todd? Oh, I'm so glad you picked this movie, because I have a bit of a storied history with it myself. When I was in high school, I had a English teacher. His name was Mr. Bell, and he was a very big influence on me, and pretty notorious <laughs> among my friends. He was... um and probably still is, <laughs> a, uh, he was the guy who would challenge you, you know? He would love to start off the class by saying, I'm going to lie to you, and I'm going to tell you things that aren't true, and it's your job to challenge me and catch me on it and that sort of stuff. And so his notion was that in his class, he would always keep us on our toes, and he would give us puzzles, and he did a really, really good job of just setting us up for every unit and every theme that we did. He also loved to um, give us old poems and Nathaniel Hawthorne, you know, really deep, Mm -hmm. heady kind of stuff and ask us to interpret it and things. And so he was really very into theming his units and his ideas and kind of grouping literature and stuff around it. And I'm pretty sure it was during one of these units where we were diving in deep into something that had to do with revenge uh, that he said, we're going to watch Pumpkinhead. And none of us, I think, in the class had seen it before, and we may have even needed to get our parents' permission to watch it, because I think it's rated R, right? Yep. And I remember two sessions in Mr. Bell's class sitting down and watching Pumpkinhead, and then we discussed it afterwards. And uh, we went in pretty deep on the movie, because the movie, it's a good one to show to high school students, really, if you're going to try to get some theme, you know, get them to analyze it, because it's it doesn't hide its themes it's it's pretty laid bare. Yeah. You might even say it's almost a little too heavy-handed, but it was really cool for us as kids to probably have, I think for me, maybe the very first experience I ever had critically analyzing the thematic material of a movie. So that 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 class is just one of the very few from high school that really sticks in my mind. So I was really anxious to revisit this movie, which I haven't seen since then, to see if it held up uh, the way that I remembered it being so cool, you know, the way it was presented to me there. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it it is kind of a morality play, an allegory about uh, revenge and the dangers of revenge. And that's, you know, I think totally worthy of discussion. I'm impressed by uh, your English teacher thinking of that. It uh, The movie came out in 1988, and it was inspired by 
a poem, and then Stan Winston wrote the screenplay with another guy, um, Mark Patrick Carducci, I think, or, or, or no, maybe that guy wrote the story, uh, and Stan Winston just directed. Stan Winston was approached to do this movie to do the effects, to the, do the creature effects, because that's really what he's known for. Um, I mean, Stan Winston is one of the biggest names in Hollywood special effects, am I right? Yep, yep. Unfortunately, he died in 2008, but he was, for sure. For sure. Gotcha. And his studio lives on. And he worked on uh, Jurassic Park and the Terminator franchise and tons of other big stuff. And Aliens. <laughs> yeah. Leviathan. Yeah, I mean, huge, 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 great uh, effects movies. And they approached him with this, and he read it, and he said, all right, I'll do it, but I want to direct this movie. And this was his first feature-length directorial project. And actually, as it turns out, he mostly just ended up doing supervisory stuff as far as the effects were concerned. The folks who actually did work on the effects said that Stan Winston was great to work with because he knew what he was doing. Um, they said that uh, so often when they work with filmmakers, filmmakers have these ideas, but they don't really have the knowledge or skill to how to realize those ideas. And so it's a lot of hit and miss. With Stan Winston, you know, they could show him something and he could just say, yeah, that's good, or no, not quite yet. And uh, they had a lot of freedom. Um, and apparently, virtually everybody who worked on this movie said that uh, Stan Winston was just an absolute joy to work with. It was a really fun production, laid back. They shot it on a small budget, $3 million, and for that... I think that it looks amazing, and yeah. for somebody's directorial debut, I got to be honest with you. I, you know, I hadn't seen this in probably twenty years, um, maybe more, uh, and I remembered liking it, but I kind of anticipated that looking back at it now, I would find it kind of cheesy and hokey, and would probably find a lot of flaws in the effects and that type of stuff. I loved this movie. <laughs> like I loved it. It was so so good. And I guess not surprisingly so, but um for this type of film, you know, a creature feature, low budget, relatively low anyway, there was so much opportunity for it to fall into that category of bad or so bad it's good. But I have very few really if any criticisms uh of the movie. I just thought it was great overall um yeah. I, am i gonna be alone in that boat no i don't think so i, I mean the movie's dripping with atmosphere and that's the one thing i've got to say about it it has so much atmosphere it's almost oppressive it's just you never get out of the darkness and the the smoke and the the candlelight and the half-lit scenes just basically as soon as the action starts you're there all the time. In in some ways, because a lot of it take most of it takes place in the woods, it's a little evocative of Friday the Thirteenth. In fact, one of the cabins in the movie uh, is the cabin that they used in Friday the Thirteenth, the final chapter, huh. and has been used in a lot of other movies, by the way. So it's it's really heavy and thick and just dripping with atmosphere. And I think that that's where a lot of that higher quality, higher budget feel comes from it because he was simply able to do so much with so little money because he filled the frame with with great lighting and shadows 
Um, you know, the, the witch's cabin that we get to at some point, you know, has candles and just spiders and snakes and crap all over the place. It would seem cheesy and hokey if it weren't played so straight and so dark. Mm-hmm. It's really dark. And I'm not just talking about the, the visual. Like, the, the, it's a very dark movie. Apparently, at Stan Rinson's request, that that the movie be written a little darker than the original script he was given. And so they made some changes uh, to make it more serious. So it's a, I mean, you could say it's a slasher movie in a sense, a creature type slasher movie, but it doesn't have those winks and those nods and that humor in it at all. <laughs> right? Right. So it's a different kind of movie. It's it's starkly different than a lot of stuff that we normally watch, I think. Even though, on its face, when you just talk about it, it, it doesn't seem like it should be. It just kind of came together that way. Which is interesting. Like, like you said, everything I read, too, said that this guy was a blast. Every day at the set, he was joking around. He was laughing. It was so easygoing. Like, he had no care in the world. And just completely full of self-confidence. Uh, as a first-time director, that uh, everybody has great things to say about him and the experience of making this movie. It's it's almost a wonder he didn't direct more. He really didn't direct much more than this. Mm-mm. So no, he didn't. The guy who wrote the screenplay cited Mario Bava uh, as one of his influences, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. Didn't we do a Bava film recently? Uh, recently, we did one by his son. Uh, Demons was uh, his. Oh son's. right, right. Gotcha. We're gonna do more Bava. If I have anything to say <laughs> about it, <laughs> but the the storytelling is is good. I mean, it, it feels very much like um, a legend. I mean, like I said, it was inspired by an original poem, but it feels very much. I don't want to say urban legend because it's more of a rural uh, atmosphere, but yeah. um, it, it feels like a kind of traditional legend. And interestingly enough, you know, you say that. Uh, once you get into that atmosphere, you know, you're just kind of stuck in that dark, scary atmosphere for the rest of the movie. And that's true, but really we don't even get there until halfway through the movie. There's quite a bit of setup. True. The setup is just as intriguing as to when the monster finally appears and starts killing people. Mm. Um, in fact, maybe even I think the first half of the movie is really, really strong and really provides a nice foundation then for, you know, the scary monster part. Yeah. It opens up in, um, well, first of all, I want to say the scoring of the movie is great. A guy named Roger Stone did it, and from the very beginning, the opening credits, which are pretty long, the score is fantastic, and I was just into it right away. It opens up in 1957, and we are with the childhood family of what will be our main character. His name is Ed Harley. Um, And this is during his childhood, and he lives in a very rural area, apparently, with his parents. We come to them at night, and uh, the mother is putting Ed to bed, and there's a lot of tension in the house, and the dad's kind of wandering around with his gun, securing the animals, and eventually they lock themselves in the house, and we see somebody being chased by what we don't know right away, um, but this guy is being chased by something, and he shows up at the door. He's seeking uh, sanctuary, um, but they won't let him in. They say, we can't. We can't let you in. We have to stay out of this. You have to get out of here. And eventually, something grabs him and drags him away, and little Ed looks out the window, and we get a full-frame shot of 
our monster for the movie, Pumpkinhead. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of amazing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they don't shroud the creature in secrecy at all. And so his first viewing of it as a child is our first one as well. But then we jump to the present where he is now grown. Ed is grown, living apparently in the same area, maybe even the same house that he grew up in. I think it's the same house. Yeah. Probably is. Um, And it's just him and his super, super cute son. (laughs) This, This tiny little blonde boy with these thick glasses. And they just have this wonderfully sweet uh relationship and you just kind of see them going about their daily things and uh, eventually the dad says it's about time to go to the store because they apparently run a little general store but before they go his son gives him a gift and it's just you know a, a necklace made out of twine and maybe like a little stick man figure made out of clay or something very rough very much something like a child would make but he gives it to his dad and so cute oh well now this is something it goes around your neck this is something special you really like it i love it you don't have to wear it every day or nothing just when it strikes you give me a hug i ain't never taking it off punk this bond between the father and son is so integral to the plot and i just thought by the way adult ed is played by lance henriksen who looks young and handsome and fit and i just think he does an amazing job with this role and i believe 100 percent in this relationship between him and his son and i think that if that hadn't worked then the movie wouldn't have worked at all that's right. Yeah, it's it's key. And, and Lance Hendrickson, I believe, had just come off of Near Dark for this. And an interesting bit of trivia I discovered and also saw some online interviews with him on YouTube that uh, he apparently, when he's getting ready for his roles, likes to collect props to use in uh-huh. the movie. So he put together some of his own costume. He found a ball cap that he wears in the movie that that he thought would fit his character. He had a World War II-era shotgun that he bought when they were down filming Near Dark and probably appeared in that movie that he asked Stan Stan Winston. He said, please, can I use this in the film? And he agreed. And then later he has a bag full of silver dollars that he actually went around to some antique stores and gathered up so that he could have it in this film. So uh, this guy, I mean, he's a great actor. He clearly gets into his role and has unique ways of doing it. Everything he's been in, I've usually really enjoyed his performance and never had a bad thing to say about it. Yeah, He was Bishop in Aliens, um, like I said, Near Dark. We've done at least one or two other films that he was been in. Was he in Leviathan as well? I don't know why I think I don't remember. Fantastic guy. And you're right. Their chemistry is integral to the part uh, because uh, if that hadn't worked, uh, the rest of his actions really wouldn't have um, really wouldn't have come off for us. It would, have, it would have started to feel cheesy. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Like I said, they work, or the dad, I guess, owns and runs uh, a general store. So they go there, and then we are introduced to our typical cast of jerky 20-something. On a road trip, they're <laughs> you know coming to this area to rent a cabin to do some dirt bike riding. And there's a whole bunch of them, kind of the important ones. There's Joel, who's like 
the jerky leather jacket, wearing one, drinking beer while he's driving, etc. And then he's got a brother, Steve, a younger brother, Steve. Um, Steve's girlfriend is Maggie. She has long blonde hair. Um, and then Joel has a girlfriend too. I didn't catch her name until much later in the movie. I don't remember what it is. She doesn't have much to <laughs> I don't do either. Kim, and then one other couple, Chris, who's kind of a preppy guy, and his girlfriend, Tracy, who's like the sensible girl. Yeah. But anyway, these kids all show up, and of course they're fish out of water in this rural area, and they're kind of fascinated by the small country store, and this other local family, the Wallace family, pulls up in their pickup truck, and it's so stereotypical, but hilarious. Yeah. (laughs) I say hilarious, but not in a laugh-out-loud kind of way, just in the portrayal of kind of this backwoods family. Like, we're talking about, you know, a bunch of kind of slack-jawed kids, dirty, wearing, like... (laughs) Oversized hand-me-down clothes. Yeah, like burlap sacks, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Bare feet, hair unkempt. And then, and who comes out of the who comes out of the truck? But our good old buddy Buck Flowers. <laughs> Buck Flowers, oh, man, who plays a little bit against type here because he usually plays uh, a drunk or a bum. And in here, I kind of get the feeling that he's kind of an upstanding guy in this very rural community. Like he's got mm. this huge family that all lives on his farm, and this is just a sampling of them. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) But he uh, goes inside to, you know, get what he needs, and the kids stay out. I would never have noticed. I just happened to look at the full cast list and saw an interesting name. One of these little kids who piles out of the back of this truck is Mayim Bialik in her first film role. Yeah. I, I think she maybe has one or two words uh, of dialogue but interesting Mayim by yeah. Alex first <laughs> she she went on to do a lot bigger and better things you never would have recognized her if you hadn't noticed right I mean if you hadn't no but I did go back like after I because I didn't notice at first and then afterwards I was looking through I I went back to that scene and if you look you can tell it's definitely her yeah, yeah. The oldest boy, his name is, starts with a B. What's his name? Bunt? Bunt. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully his nickname. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he is played by a guy named Brian Bremer, who we have seen before. Did you remember him? He was Pino in Silent Night, Deadly Night 5. Do you remember that? Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. I knew he was familiar, but I didn't know where he was from. <laughs> yeah, good old Pino. He was also in Society, which is another one. Oh, uh, Society's the one I recognized him from, I think, yeah. And uh, these these uh, kind of, I don't know, I don't want to call them all jerks because they're not, but, you know, these 20-something kids are interacting with the locals, and one of the local kids starts getting taunted by his brothers and sisters and they do this chant this poem jimmy joe you done bad y'all know what settles on badness <laughs> don't you pumpkin head pumpkin head y'all stop there ain't no pumpkin head what about old mr foley he moved away uh-uh pumpkin head got it. off his head and drank all the blood did not. Did to. Shut up, Hesse. Keep away from Pumpkinhead unless you're tired of living. His enemies are mostly dead. He's mean and unforgiving. Stop it! So we know there's this lore. 
The problem comes when Mr. Wallace uh, asks for his grain or his feet or something, and Ed says, oh, shoot, I left it up at the house. Can I run and get it real quick? And Mr. Wallace says, no, I have to go. And Ed says, okay, well, I'll just drop it by the house later. And he says, that's fine. So the Wallaces leave, and then Ed calls his son inside and says, stay here with the dog inside, and I just have to run up to the house real quick, and I'll be right back. Meanwhile, Joel, the jerky one, pulls down his dirt bike, and his brother uh, does as well, and they're dirt biking around. Gypsy, the son's dog, Billy's dog, hears the bikes and runs out of the store, and Billy goes running after him. And tragically, fully accidentally, but tragically, these bikes come up over um, a big hill, and the one that Joel is riding strikes Billy, uh, mm. and he goes down on the ground. And um, basically, everybody, they don't really know what to do, but Joel immediately gets out of there. We find out later that it's because he had been drinking, and he had also been involved in an accident in which a little girl had been injured previously and he's on probation so he gets out of there and they just leave behind one the rest of them go to the cabin because they want to they need to get a phone they want to call for help but they leave the brother joel's brother there and they all leave and eventually ed comes back and notices that billy's not there goes outside sees him kind of runs over to him very gently puts his glasses back on and picks him up and begins carrying him back towards his truck. The brother, Steve, says, you know, it was an accident. What can I do? And Ed just looks over his shoulder and gives him a glare to end all glares. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, if looks could kill, seriously, that guy would have dropped dead. Well, it's a pretty hopeless situation because... We don't know. Like, we don't know if the kid is dead or not. And in the in the shots that you see of him, you can see his eyes are flickering. Uh-huh. And I don't know if that was just a mistake of the filming or if that was intentional or it doesn't really matter because we're not really sure if he's dead. That really gets to you after a while. Like, what's somebody needs to help this kid, but they're so far out in the middle of nowhere. There's no phone. Everybody's gone. You remember this time before cell phones when we just... Yeah. We were pretty helpless at this point, and... Dad comes back, and he carries him inside, and his first thing is to get... Oh, God, this is just terrible. (laughs) He goes to get a washcloth full of water and sits down and has him cradled in his arms and starts talking to him and wipes his face down. And all the boy says is, Daddy. And then clearly just, he's gone. And, I cried. Oh, dude, this like, is so, so horrible. <laughs> like, I was... Uh, me too. Okay. crying. <laughs> I Not mean, just a single, like, movie tear, like, crying. It was so sad. It is. I mean, and, and this, it's every parent's worst nightmare, and this... Like you said, they had such a fantastic relationship. You don't know where the mom is. There's no mention of where mom went or whatever, but you just know. We find out she's dead because uh, eventually he buries his son next to 
next to next to Billy's mother. Got and, it. And he he says something like, "They took our boy, um, but I'll get him," or something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's I spent so much time on that early part because I swear that's the part that sucked me in, and I was just devastated. I knew the kid was going to die because I've seen the movie before. Yeah. But even having seen the movie before, it was just tragic, and more so tragic because they had such a wonderful relationship and it was just the two of them yeah and to i can't imagine um that kind of loss especially no parent should ever lose a child as far as i'm concerned and that uh it's just it's horrible but that's why i spent so much time on that after that it pretty much just kind of becomes um a revenge slash monster movie because ed goes to mr wallace um, and shows him his son's body and says, I supposedly there's this old woman up in the woods. Can you tell me where she is? And he says, no, I don't know anything about that. I'm sorry about your boy. You got to tell me. She's the only one that can help him. Like I said, I'm sorry. You got to tell me. God damn it. She can't help him. All she can do is take you straight to hell. Now you go on home. You go home and you bury your boy. But Bunt overhears this and intercepts Ed as he's leaving and says, I know who you're talking about. I can tell you where she is. He just wants a little money. And so Ed gives him some money. Bunt takes him halfway. He won't go all the way because he says that lady freaks him out. But he takes him halfway and points him towards the witchiest swamp cabin you've ever seen in your life. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it could not be any witchier than this swamp cabin. I mean, any movie you've ever seen with a witch in it, multiply it times ten. This is it. This is the back. This is the quintessential backwood witch. As soon as he opens the door to this cabin and walks inside, there are candles everywhere that apparently she lights dutifully every evening. It's crawling with their like bones and there's cobwebs and spiders and tarantulas uh, it's like how it's halloween in in this woman's apartment and she looks like i mean if her skin were green it would be the only thing separating her from your quintessential halloween witch you don't get a good head-on shot of her face for a while Mm -hmm. she's sitting in front of the fire and she's not even looking at him uh, as he talks to her Uh, but you can see her skin is just completely wrinkly and weathered her hair is threadbare and white and just everything's lit from the back of the glow by the fire. Her eyes seem like they're cataract over. And the way she talks is just this raspy voice. It sounds like it hurts just just speaking. And he asks her to help him. And she says, I can't raise the dead. Uh, and uh, he said, I know. But uh, I hear talk of, uh, you know, something else you can do for me. And she said, are you sure uh, that you want this? Because it comes at a great price. And he pulls out his bag. This is where he has a little satchel. And uh, Lance Hendrickson, you know, the way he described this was, this this would probably be like basically all the money savings that this guy has in his life is, you Mm -hmm. know, enough to just hold around in one hand in a satchel. And he dumps all of these coins and a few pieces of jewelry into a cup on her table. And her instructions are to go up to the old cemetery where people used to bury their unwanted kin in a pumpkin patch area of the cemetery and and dig up this one body. And he says, well, how will I know which one it is? And she says, oh, you'll know. 
And he goes to this pumpkin patch. Again, the creepiest, Halloweeniest pumpkin patch <laughs> in the middle of the woods you could imagine. And uh, there is a sort of a raised pedestal of earth. <laughs> Just like a mini... I hate to call it a hill. It's like a tiny little plateau that's jutted up. It looks like a table. Yeah. And he climbs to the top of it and digs into the soil. Interestingly enough, the soil's pretty loose up there. Yeah. Like this thing's been dug up a lot. And he pulls out this withered body. It looks charred. It's in a fetal position and fairly small. And he brings it back to her and takes it into her cabin and sets it down. And she looks down at it and says, you're looking at vengeance. Mm-hmm. And that's our theme. And she goes through her incantations and pours some stuff on him, brings the father's hand over and cuts his hand so that some blood uh, drips down into the bowl, which she then pours onto the corpse, and then takes it over to the boy's body and cuts some blood from the boy as well and mixes that in uh, and uses it to resurrect this creature in front of us. And so it, we see it. We see it move and, you know, it kind of grows and, and gets up. And immediately, as this creature is getting life and getting power and starting to stand up and grow, Ed is getting woozy. He pretty much doesn't even see this go on because his eyes are closed. He eventually falls to the floor and passes out. And we see the creature, on the other hand, stand up strong. Full on shot. I mean, you know, from legs to, to top. And it looks fantastic. It's it amazing. Looks so good. I mean, mostly, I guess this is an example of a guy in a rubber suit, but the suit looks so good. And I don't know what else they did with it. It's, it's this tall, demon looking monster with, um, it, it's, uh, humanoid kind of. So it's got, you know, two legs uh, that it stands upright on, these long arms with really long fingers with claws, big protruding shoulder blades and hip bones, a long tail with kind of a blade or something on the end of that, and then a big monstrous head that doesn't really look like a pumpkin. It's not named pumpkin head because it looks like it literally has a pumpkin head, but because it comes from the pumpkin patch. Yeah, because that would be silly. <laughs> yeah, because that would be stupid. Uh, no, they, they they deliberately said they did not want it to be too reminiscent of a pumpkin, even though it is bulbous. It's bigger than a human head. It, it's got kind of a xenomorph feel to it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it really is hard to deny that, um, the xenomorph look. I mean, it, it's very bony, Right, and its mm-hmm. skin is really pulled tight over its body. It it has the image of a de- of kind of a decomposed corpse. You know, its skin is kind of whitish and pale, but it's pulled across these bones. But there's something odd about it. It does, you know, it's human, but not in the right ways. Right, right. like you said, it's got these shoulder blades these sh- that just jut straight up, like its arms were just shoved past its shoulders and they said that they did this as kind of a way to evoke that image of a demon you know the demon horns without literally putting the horns of a demon on the creature which would look silly and yeah and it's got this like you said sort of a humanoid face with a nose that's more implied than really there just wrinkled up a little bit in in its wrinkles and then its eyes 
are kind of glassy and white, and mm-hmm. it's hard to see. I guess it does have some pupils that are a little reptilian, but you hardly ever see those pupils. And I guess this movie has sequels, and then the monster's a little different in the following sequels, and it's not even necessarily the same monster, really. Right. In the subsequent movies, the, the eyes are completely white. And then it's standing up on these legs that are kind of, they, they bend backwards like a satyr, uh-huh. which apparently was a new thing. This is the first time that they were able to achieve this. They tried to do this with Predator. I don't know if you've seen the history, because Stan Winston's team worked on Predator as well, and it went through quite a few uh, creature design changes before he was brought on board. Yeah. And uh, the problem with this kind of rig with a movie like Predator is that alien's got to move fast. And it was really hard for the actor, even in this big, heavy suit, to be up on the kind of a stilty type thing that's required for the, to, to get this effect of the, the knee that kind of bends backwards. So for most of the movie, actually, they do have some wide shots, but uh, the, that's done with a suit that's not quite as bulky. And the closer shots of him are usually from the legs up, so you can't see that part down below because he just couldn't have that on all the time doing all of the full-on monster movements and things mm-hmm. but yeah it's it's otherworldly it's, it's demonic and big and it does look like something that was reanimated from a severely messed up not right corpse <laughs> right and it's all practical and you see it mostly in the dark whenever Pumpkinhead is around suddenly you know there's like flashing lightning and stuff for atmospheric purposes now that if that's part of its powers or whatever is that you know not really clear but there you know there's there's flashing light like kind of lightning and stuff that you can see it in but you mostly see it in the dark but it looks as far as practical effects go i think this is some of the best creature work i've ever seen yeah and he, and he doesn't, again, this is a master who exactly, who, the director happens to be an expert in this field, so he knows what he can do and what he can't do and how he can get away with stuff. And it's really important to note that unlike a lot of other low-budget movies where they use a lot of tricks to hide the deficiencies of their creature, there's a lot of shadow, you only get to see quick glimpses of it or fast shots, even though it's very atmospheric and there is a lot of shadow and flashing light and stuff, you never get that feeling that they're deliberately hiding the creature from mm-hmm. you in any way, shape, or form. In fact, you see an awful lot of this creature in all of its glory for a lot of the movie, and it's oh, really yeah. impressive that way. It's so satisfying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when they leave, well, when they, uh, Ed takes Billy's body um, and leaves because Haggis the witch says, it's, it's started now. You can go home. They're driving back and there's kind of this quick jump scare where Billy's body shoots up in the seat and looks at his dad and says, what did you do, daddy? Oh. It's just his guilt bothering him it's not real it didn't happen um but lance henriksen said that that is why he took this role uh was that just really quick scene of him feeling the guilt but and then after that basically you know all of those kids the 20 somethings are hunkered down in this cabin and there's some drama with them but it's not important you know uh What's his name? Joel doesn't want to tell because he'll get in trouble. And so he locks the ones you do want to tell in a closet and blah, blah, blah. But basically at this point, as soon as Pumpkinhead is resurrected, 
he's uh hones in on them and he shows up at the cabin and he starts picking them off by, one by one yeah uh and and the kill scenes are not particularly they're exciting no. but they're not particularly unique from one another basically every time what happens is somehow kind of from off screen pumpkinhead either grabs them by the ankles and drags them away or from up in the trees like we'll grab them by the heads and pull them up into the trees and you know kind of slice at them with his claws but mostly he kind of just throws them on the ground and they die (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, he more or less just drops them (laughs) and that's i mean for what it's worth it's not friday the 13th this is not a movie that is reveling in the gore uh, it's not a movie that's even particularly gory. I mean, it's gruesome, and there are some gory parts, but, y- you know, it's not like... Like, for example, one of the kills, I can't remember, it's one of the girls, Pumpkinhead picks her way up in the top of this massively high tree that has no branches down below. I have no idea how he got her up there, and then drops her on a rock. And you see her fall, and then you see her, you know, back clearly broken on the rock with some blood around. But that's it. Like... You don't see protruding bones or mm-hmm. guts flying out anywhere. It's They haven't been slashed to ribbons and their organs are spilling out. Mm-hmm. It's just not that kind of movie, even though it kind of is that kind of movie from here on out as far as being more like a typical slasher. I, I mean, I have, to, I have to say for me, this part of the movie got a little tedious, maybe because I knew it was going to happen, but also I thought the characters were rather uninteresting, kind of like your Friday the 13th movie, and the kills were themselves the act of the killings were kind of uninteresting and predictable i mean we kind of knew they would get picked off one by one and that's almost exactly what happens it's just the parallel action of the regret and the guilt that the father immediately starts feeling that's going on i think that makes the movie more unique and keeps this moving Uh, I felt it slowed down a little bit during this part to be completely honest fair enough i mean we are talking i think we're in the last half hour 25 minutes of the movie at this point and it slows down in that it's repetitive yeah but it still moves pretty quickly and i have to say you know the more i think about it i actually kind of like the economy of it you know this isn't some serial killer who's relishing in torturing people this is a vengeance demon who has a job and his job is to kill these people and that's what he does Mm. like there's no there's no messing around there's no toying around with them true he just grabs them and kills them and moves on to the next one i I love though that he always returns the bodies like that is so funny to me (laughs) like he'll kill somebody out in the woods but then he'll bring the body back and just like toss it in the house just to like show everybody else (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is kind of interesting, isn't it? And then particularly the one girl, the first one he kills, I think, or the first girl he kills, right? Because yeah. Steve is the first one to go, which is interesting because Steve is like the nicest, most moral guy of the whole group. Yeah. He's the one who stays with the boy. He's the one who's arguing with his brother. It's like he's the good of the two brothers, right? Like there's uh-huh. a good one and there's the bad one. Steve's the first one to die and his brother ends up being the last one to die. Yep. And his brother was the one responsible for the kill. Killing, you know, yeah. so it's uh, it's an interesting twist. I think that at least is a little unexpected. The thing that I found the hokiest in the whole movie is was that they tried for like five seconds to give Joel a redemption arc, like just out of nowhere. He has a change <laughs> of heart and like literally says, I'm going to be good from now on. Like, pfft. 
and then that's it. <laughs> I'm the one you want. He goes outside, suddenly is willing to self-sacrifice. <laughs> yeah. Well, Pumpkinhead yeah. kills all of them except for Joel and the two, like, goody-goody ones, um, Tracy and Chris. And Tracy and Chris, they're running away. They end up at the Wallace farm, and almost exactly the same scene plays out from the flashback at the beginning of the movie where they're pounding on the door asking to come in. The Wallace family won't let them in because the rule is Pumpkinhead will only kill the people that he's been, you know, assigned or whatever, unless somebody else gets in his way. And if you get in his way, then you're fair game too. So they won't let him in, but Bunk here, or Bunt, whatever his name is, uh, <laughs> again, overhears all this and he wants to see Pumpkinhead. So he goes out to help them and he leads them to this old old church that I think that it's implied that they started building it and never finished it, but it looks more like it's kind of burnt out. And again, it's a very, you know, Halloween type uh, area, but it looks really cool. Hmm. And they go there and chat for a few minutes until finally uh, Pumpkinhead does show up and it's a just, they run away and Pumpkinhead just slowly walks through this burned out church with the, the lightning flashing and he walks up to a cross and gives it a dirty look and picks it up and smashes it and the sequence doesn't really do anything at all to advance the plot but it looks so cool to see him probably eight feet tall just walking slowly Mm. down the aisle of this church it's looked great yeah and it it does advance the theme that we're talking here about you know a demon from hell uh, this isn't, you know, just a monster or something like that. This is something that has uh, maybe is opposite uh, heaven, you know, opposite good, opposite everything that that cross stands for. Uh, so it goes in there and very purposefully smashes the cross up. I remember, I remember, Mister Bell, my uh, my English teacher, really hammering this point home <laughs> in our interpretation of the movie. In fact, I was reading about um, the filmmakers' intentions with this. Well, they also base it off of Lovecraftian lore as well. Uh, and there, you know, is some discussion as to maybe there is, maybe hell is really just an alternate dimension of super nasty creatures that we don't understand. You know, just like a Hellraiser type series mm-hmm. is kind of kind of based, predicated on that too, uh, which is also Lovecraftian, you know, in a way. So that is another thing that kind of sets this apart is that whole mythology behind it. I, I feel like it's is rich, it's, is ripe for playing with and, and mm-hmm. fleshing out. I'm not sure how much of that they do in the subsequent movies because I haven't seen any of the subsequent movies. They seemed like cheap direct-to-DVD deals to me. But anyway, yeah, so I think that scene is powerful for that and the visual, like you say, that it has. Like, this thing's not going to mess around. You're not going to be able to kill it by shooting it or cutting its head off. You know, it's just not going to happen. Right. This is not just a creature. It's a supernatural demon that's going to kill you. Yeah, and there's not much they can do. They try to fight back a little bit. Meanwhile, every time a pumpkin head has killed someone, Ed kind of sees it uh, and experiences it along with him and we also see a couple of scenes where something will happen to Ed he'll get struck in the arm or he'll get jabbed with a pitchfork or something and every time he gets hurt Pumpkinhead gets hurt too and Ed is even you know having to witness these kids deaths Ed feels guilty and he goes back to Haggis and says you know I want to stop it and she says you can't stop it 
Um, and he says, well, I'm going to even if it kills me. And she says, well, it will. And he says, God damn you, God damn you. He already has, son. <laughs> but he knows he's on his own so eventually he shows up uh Pumpkinhead got Chris but he's not dead he did kill Joel now they are holed up i think in Ed's house and they hide it's cute little dog gypsy hides in a box that was adorable <laughs> but Pumpkinhead finds Bunt and takes him outside um, he's already beaten up Chris a little bit and has just been dragging him along, but hasn't killed him yet. Um, and Tracy is there. And eventually, Ed comes out and he's got a shotgun. At some point, they shoot uh, Pumpkinhead with a shotgun and he goes down, but then he just comes right back up. And Ed realizes the only way uh, to kill Pumpkinhead will be to kill himself because they are somehow connected. And I didn't remember this, but... Uh, in that final scene, Pumpkinhead and Ed's appearance both begin to change. Ed's face becomes more like the demon, and Pumpkinhead's face becomes more like Lance Henriksen. Did you notice that? Yeah, I did. This is another thing we talked about in the class, because, you know, I mean, obviously the theme here, the idea is that this vengeance demon, I mean, it's it's all obviously the responsibility of ed mm -hmm. and ed is vengeance ed is the demon ed is this this you know it's a manifestation of his uh, desire for this vengeance and so you can summon this demon to kill them but in the act of summoning you're responsible for it right so right. ed is pumpkin head and uh, it's made visually clear by the fact that his face morphs into more and more i think it's supposed to be more and more close to ed until the final act is done Mm -hmm. But the final act doesn't ever get done because they're able to stop him. And the way they stop him is Ed crawls to the to the to the, his truck. He pulls out a little handgun he has and tries to shoot himself in the head. But apparently it doesn't quite work and it puts Pumpkinhead down but not out. Pumpkinhead reaches out and grabs one of the kids and it's was it, what's her name? Is it Tracy. Is it Tracy? Yeah. She's the one who's left. Yeah. She's left. Pumpkinhead's over there with the other girl, and uh, she's got the shotgun, and Ed reaches out to her and says, kill me, please. Uh, and so she ends up shooting Ed, and when Ed dies, Pumpkinhead dies and bursts into flame. Mm -hmm. Spontaneous combustion. Huh. So interesting, right? It was. It really was. And then, so you think that's the end, but then there's a great little uh, end scene, too, where you see Haggis, and, and she's on the mound in the cemetery where Pumpkinhead was buried, and she's burying him again. And what she is burying is the Pumpkinhead demon, but when the camera zooms in on the corpse, you see that it is wearing the necklace that uh, Billy had made for his dad. So in essence, the old body of Pumpkinhead had burned and Ed's body had become the new one, uh, which I didn't remember. So uh, I, I, seemingly, whoever summons the demon eventually becomes the demon. Uh, and then, you know, the next time somebody calls on the demon, it's actually the last person in line. Uh, I did read, I have, I've seen part two. I don't, 
a long time ago about uh, I don't remember a whole lot about it and I don't remember if it was a theatrical release but I think some of the same people were involved the third and fourth one came much later and they were cable TV movies uh, they were sci-fi movies I didn't see them because I figured they probably wouldn't be very good they actually didn't get terrible fan reviews um, but I guess in all four of the movies you never see what happens if Pumpkinhead completes his mission because in all of the movies the summoner gets killed before the mission is complete so who knows what would happen if he was able to actually finish his job but based on what we have we don't know or does the summoner always die and that's the price of vengeance you know yeah. it's it's hard to say right and i read also that there was talk in fact as as early as 2017 uh, there was talk of a TV series for sci-fi called Tales for Pup- Tales of Pumpkinhead, and they were, it was just going to be a series of shorts, you know, stories on Pumpkinhead and different situations throughout the ages. Obviously, this is an age-old demon that's been around since man has been around. Even some backstory on Haggis they were planning on. They were also talking about expanding it out to other demons because, you know, like a greed one and a gluttony <clears throat> one and whatever to kind of round out the deadly sins and create this whole mythology behind it. But it, apparently that ended up getting canned. And there's been a reboot of the series also they've been talking about for years that I think as early as November of last year of 2019, they were getting ready to announce some news about it. And it had been supposedly in development hell since at least 2016, maybe even earlier than that. So we may see more Pumpkinhead, it's, it's hard to say. I bet we will at some point. And I do. I agree with you that the story, the lore, um, there are a lot of ways that they could go with it. And in the right hands, I think it could be done very well. Of course, it could be total schlock, too. But but this movie isn't. I really, really liked this movie. I'm, I was surprised um, by how much I liked it. And I think that part of that surprise just comes from, why didn't I remember how good it was? Uh, and, <laughs> yeah. and, I'm, and I'm being serious when I say I think it's a really good movie. The effects are good. The cinematography is good. The acting, the, you know, the 20-somethings are really just fodder to be picked off. Yeah. Don't care about them very much. But Lance Hendrickson is great. Um, the atmosphere, the music, even Haggis the Witch was played by a character actress who has a bazillion credits uh, to her name, and she looked fantastic. Her costume, I read, weighed something like 65 pounds or something like that. Mm-hmm. Really, it's a perfect Halloween movie. They just don't get much better than this. This may very well be one of my favorite, if not my favorite, creature features, period. I just think it's a, I just think it's great. Yeah, I'd echo everything that you said, and I, I was a little concerned that maybe I just felt that way because I have a little bit of nostalgia towards it. <laughs> but um, the only thing I would say that's a little bit negative about the movie for me is that it, I felt there wasn't a lot of suspense as far as, ooh, is he there? Is he not there? The, the winds start blowing and the lights start flashing and before you know it, somebody's been grabbed, mm-hmm. um, which is fine. It's just that kind of story. Like you said, once it starts moving, it doesn't really stop. The interest, I think, and the intrigue is how are they going to stop it? And is dad going to be able to redeem himself by the mm-hmm. end? So it's a different kind of horror movie than it seems to be on first glance, which is why it's so great, I think. Just something unique. 
in the genre blanketed underneath uh, something that seems on its face to be just another creature feature, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it's clever in that way. Right. Craig, you had mentioned uh, that this was based on a poem by Ed Justin. Uh-huh. I found the poem. Do you want to hear it? Sure. Keep away from Pumpkinhead unless you're tired of living. His enemies are mostly dead. He's mean and unforgiving. Laugh at him and you're undone, but in some dreadful fashion. Vengeance he considers fun and plans it with a passion. Time will not erase or blot a plot that he has brewing. It's when you think that he's forgot, he'll conjure your undoing. Bolted doors and windows barred, guard dogs prowling in the yard, won't protect you in your bed. Nothing will from Pumpkinhead. <laughs> That's good. Not bad, huh? Yeah, no, it, it reminds me of scary stories to tell in the dark or yeah. um, <laughs> just uh, those <laughs> back in the day, <laughs> parents used to tell kids or kids would, you know, spread these stories uh, around to scare kids into behaving. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, <laughs> you know, <yeah. laughs> the boogeyman and, you know, all of these things. And it works well. You know, I, I think that uh, the movie captures the spirit of the poem. Uh, I like it. I may have to pull that out in my English class around Halloween time sometime. Yeah, it's very folklorish, right? Right. Just like you said, the film's got that air to it, which is really uh, another really neat aspect of it. I would recommend this movie to any fan of horror. You know, it came out in 1988, so there are probably a lot of younger than us horror fans out there who may not know anything about it, and I would definitely recommend it. As of this recording, it is available to stream for free on Tubi, um, but those switch out pretty often, so I don't know by the time this gets posted if it'll still be there, but you should be able to find it relatively easily. It's, It's definitely worth seeking out. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, there are tons and tons of back episodes that you could listen to if you're just now discovering us. And if that's the case, uh, spread the love. Tell a friend. We would love to reach even more people. You can find us anywhere you can find your favorite podcasts. Uh, We're on Stitcher and iTunes and Google Play. And like I said, just about anywhere you can Google Two Guys in a Chainsaw podcast. You'll find our website. Uh, We have a Facebook page. So uh, there's all kinds of places that you can find us. We will be back sometime in the coming weeks with another movie. Until then, I'm Craig. And I'm Todd. With Two Guys in a Chainsaw. <laughs>